welcome to Anxiety and the Artist, the podcast that explores artist relationship with anxiety, offering insight and inspiration. I'm your host, Allison Sheff. John Carroll is the founder of Equity Therapy, a full-service psychotherapy private practice based in New York City, serving the mental health needs of the performing arts community. Before becoming a therapist, John, a graduate of the Juilliard School, performed in such shows as Fosse, Movin' Out, Chicago, A Chorus Line, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Wicked, and Follies. John, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much, Allison, for having me. I'm really, very happy to be here. That is a lot of Broadway shows. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, so, uh, uh, they were tours too, so there's there's okay. pe- peppered in with Broadway shows and tours. <laughs> but hearing it back, I was like, Ooh. "That's a lot of tech." <laughs> Lisa Guida was a guest, and she was like, yeah. "I did a lot of tech." <laughs> oh my! It's a lot of ten out of twelve. A lot of time away from home, but yes, I look back on it very, very fondly. So, um, how has your background as an artist informed your career as a therapist? Yes. Oh, what a great question. I, you know, it's so interesting because I work with a lot of performing artists that, you know, are talking about transitioning or eventually transition. And those are the exact questions I actually worked on with my own therapist, which is like how I'm a dancer. I have a BFA in dance. And my joke about that is, you know, it's basically worth its weight in unicorn paper. You know, what do you do with a degree (laughs) in dance? And what I worked on with my own therapist and what I realized because of my own lived experience and then thus try to work on with with clients is the transferable skills are off the charts right and so how does Mm -hmm. my work how did my work as a performing artist and a dancer and on broadway move itself over to be a therapist well i think your people skills have to be really really good right Mm -hmm. I, i think you have to be really attuned not only to your own emotions but to the emotions of others you know when you walk into the audition room you have to have a sense of things right you have to basically quote read the room so you're getting the energy from the choreographer the director the musical director the casting director uh all of these people and you're trying to navigate within those things so i think you become very attuned to other people and other energies and also to really sort of pay attention to the nonverbal communication that's happening. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I think helps me. Another thing that I always talk about, especially with performing artists, is the work ethic. The work ethic is nothing short of militant. Mm -hmm. And I feel if we have conversations with other people in other fields, they work very, very hard. But the dedication is very different when you're a performer. You know, my husband's a lawyer. So I say, you know, when did you start law? You know, he started in grad school. Okay, well, I started dancing at six. So by the time you know, six years old to grad school, I have possibly 20 years of training and and experience under my belt. So that work ethic really does lend itself to being a therapist or something else. Now I can rattle on and on about so many other transferable skills, but you would think, oh gosh, there's nothing that's going to correlate from that. But there, yet there's so many untapped resources that I don't think performers really understand that whatever they put their mind to in life, whether it's in the career of performing arts or outside, they're really going to excel at it. Right. Well, I also think like empathy is a huge part oh, of it. Like absolutely. as a performer, you're 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 trained in empathy. Right. Yes. <laughs> and and that's also huge for being a therapist as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what if I was like, no, not really. <laughs> 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 so super basic question. Sure. What is anxiety? Yes. So I was thinking, you know, everyone, you know, there's obviously the really clinical definition and then there's the sort of feeling that we all sort of describe to ourselves. But basically anxiety is an intense, it's an excessive and persistent worry and fear about everyday situations. 
right? Because a lot of times people will say, oh, I'm really stressed. Stress mm-hmm. is absolutely very valid and it's a very real emotion. But anxiety is a little different than that. And I think the intensity, the persistence, the worry, and about the situations that we might encounter in an everyday thing and how with anxiety, usually those feelings are omnipresent. Great. Um, Can you describe the difference between anxiety and depression? Yes. And so what I would say to that, and this is very, you know, putting it in layman's terms, is I perceive uh, with the clinical work that I do that anxiety is very much a future-based emotion. Will I get the job? Will uh, he, she, or they call me back, you know, for a second date? You Mm -hmm. know, uh, will the shark eat me if I go in the ocean? It's very much future-based, right? Mm -hmm. Where depression is very much, uh, you know, uh, about the past, right? Thinking of a loved one that has maybe passed away, thinking about an experience that didn't go so well. So it's almost like this this difference of time, right? We're Mm -hmm. not usually going to have anxiety about something that happened way back when. It's always going to be sort of future-based thinking. Okay. So it would be safe to say that depression is more like regret of the past? It could absolutely be characterized as regret of the past, but we're not usually, we're not going to really feel uh, depressed over something that hasn't happened yet. So it's going to be uh, more, more or less about a lived experience. Interesting. Okay. So what are some challenges that artists experience with anxiety that aren't maybe as much of a challenge for non-artists? Yes. And I think kind of, you know, when I was talking about my husband or people that have, uh, you know, more, I was going to say office jobs, but more like nine to five jobs is if I were to ask my husband, you know, how many times have you gone on a, uh, you know, a um, interview? Mm-hmm. And for someone in, in certain professions, it's going to be like, oh, maybe once every few years. And when you talk to a performer, they're going on a, a interviews, or we call auditions, multiple times in a day. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you talk to you, I, I, you know, I, I call them muggles as if we were in, um, you know, <laughs> in Harry Potter. But if you're talking to someone that's not a performer, it's like, a, you know, what, what did you feel like when you were, uh, you know, interviewing for that firm? Oh, I was mm-hmm. nervous. My palms were sweaty. You know, I did all the research. So I had answers to questions. You know, there was all this prep time and I couldn't sleep the night before. And then you say, okay, well, what if you had five of them in a row on just any given Tuesday. And you Mm -hmm. constantly had to rev yourself up to meet the energy that was needed in that experience. And so what I would say, one of the number one things that I see not only in my own life as a former performer, but what I see clinically as a therapist is it's this constant hit of anxiety because the profession calls for it. You know, we could have Mm -hmm. a meeting where maybe we're presenting in front of five to 10 people But if eight times a week that meeting is a performance and you're doing that in front of 1,200 people, there's a little bit of a heightened anxiety. Right, right. Well, I think there's also other, not just auditioning, which is a huge thing, but like the instability Mm -hmm. of of the artist lifestyle, I think Mm -hmm. also creates a lot of anxiety. Like, where's my next paycheck going absolutely. to come from? Absolutely. You know? <laughs> yes. And, 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 and absolutely. And that speaks to almost like a, the clinical definition of anxiety is, you know, it's, it's, it's really based out of uncertain uh, and unknown uh, um, outcomes, right? And the unknown right. of where is my paycheck coming from? Where is the next job? It's absolutely going to kick up some anxiety. Amazing. So let's talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, FOMO. Oh, yes. And that is fear of missing out for those of you who don't know what FOMO is. Um, (laughs) So the industry is slowly starting to reopen and 
I'm seeing a lot of artists that are having so much anxiety um, because they feel like they're missing out or being left behind. They didn't do enough during the shutdown. They should have, you know, they should have done more. Um, So, or, or who knows? I mean, there's just so much. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about FOMO, um, how it applies to artists in general and like more specifically to COVID and the industry reopening. Yeah. And so when you talk about the industry of the Broadway and performing artists, you have an industry that was pretty much decimated for over a year and a half. You know, there's absolutely other industries that were very hard hit. But a lot of them had found a way to maneuver during this time, you know, if it was the service industry, maybe it was takeout. If it was film and television, eventually they found ways to almost create these bubbles, right, to have a very contained uh, setting in which to to get the, the filming and, and, and to produce something. You know, live theater is very much different. And so you're talking about this idea of just something being absolutely pressed pause for a year and a half. So no movement done whatsoever. And so you're going to have a lot of people that are feeling, wow, I lost so much time. I lost a year and a half of a profession that tends to be truncated on the early years of one's life. So Mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of anxiety about that. And so now with this amazing and historical moment when Broadway's coming back to life, so to speak, you know, unless you had a contract before the pandemic started, there is going to be the sense of, oh, I, I missed my stop at the train. Right. You know, there's going to be these shows that pick up and off they go. And when do the new shows come in? So this idea that, you know, the carnival is up and the the Ferris wheel is going and it's this lively party and I haven't been invited. We want to normalize those feelings. Those are absolutely normal feelings to feel. And it's, it's sort of navigating that 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 difficulty because i do feel and i think you know with fomo i think yes we hold space for people that fear that they are missing out but we also want to hold two sides of a uh, of the coin we don't want to get into sort of black and white thinking we want to have a a way of thinking that allows a full spectrum of things mm-hmm. because on the other side of that for the people that are going back they might not have this fear of missing out but what we're seeing clinically and also through people that I know in my personal life that are getting ready to start rehearsals is an intense amount of anxiety and fear mm-hmm. of not being around people for a year and a half in, in, in a setting where someone's going to be partnering with you and breathing all over you and lifting you over their head to now having to go into that, of not being able to train the way one would want to. You know, if you're primarily mm-hmm. a dancer, then these, these spaces in order to learn have been shut down. And so this idea of, is my craft ready? Is my body ready? So there, I feel like it's a very atypical time that no matter what sort of side you're on, whether you have this fear of missing out or you're ready to jump into rehearsals, we have individuals that are collectively feeling a lot of anxiety and a lot of um, uh, stress. Agreed. Agreed. Um, do, can you talk a little bit just about reopening the country in general and sort of the anxiety. So we've got like the industry anxiety, but then like, like you, a little more to just talk, if you could talk a little more about, um, you know, going into a store, spending, <laughs> spending extended periods of time with people. Like Absolutely. what is, yeah. what, what are some, some emotions and stuff that can come up surrounding that? And maybe what are some, some tools to utilize. Sure, sure. And so, you know, I'll just share with you, uh, you know, uh, I I grew up on Long Island and tonight I'm going to go to uh, take a train to Long Island and visit my mother and my niece, nephew, my sister for dinner. And there was that conversation of, oh, we'll go out to eat. 
now with all the information that we have about the, the Delta variant, we're all, you know, uh, vaccinated, but mm-hmm. there is still this new information that's coming in where there is, you, you do sort of take pause. And what I mean by that is when there's not concrete information to go by, there's going to be a kick up in, in anxiety because there's not, you know, these rules and regulations that are hard, fast, and true. So we want to normalize people's anxiety when it comes to that. And then understand that on an individual level, people are going to have to make and feel comfortable enough to make and advocate for choices that feel best for them. So -hmm. when it goes into, you know, going into a store, that's absolutely understandable when the rules keep changing, right? And we see that not only in COVID, but you can see that in someone's workplace, or you can see that with little kids, right? You know, um, I thought I'd go, I thought I'd go to bed at eight o'clock. You know, I I thought I had till eight o'clock. No, well, you're punished. You have to go to bed at six. And you see this sense of, wait, the rules are changing. And when we as human beings, we don't like that ambiguity, right? We don't like the unknown. That's why we, are, as a society, created rituals and all these beautiful things that we can sort of understand where where we're supposed to be and what's supposed to happen. It really sort of calms us down, right? And so something else that I want to uh, speak to and normalize is, so let's talk to those individuals during this last year and a half that um, have um, um, social anxiety. Mm-hmm. So many people that navigate social anxiety for the last year and a half haven't had to deal with that. Because right. things have been very contained. They haven't had to be very social or their social activity has been sort of contained to a bubble and very known people. And so we have people that have social anxiety that are really sort of getting um, uh, it heightened because mm-hmm. they're having to go into stores or there, there's talks about going back into the office or there's talks about the shows sort of opening up. And so you have people where whatever uh, they were navigating was maybe able to be dormant or be, to be calmed for a while. And they're having to um, sort of acclimate to this new normal again, with being very social. Right. I recently celebrated my 40th birthday ah, and birthday. <laughs> thank you. And I had a group of friends uh, and I, we went away for the weekend and I was super excited to spend time with my friends, obviously. Yeah. But at the same time, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be with five people yeah. for three days straight. Like, And I had so much anxiety surrounding that. And thankfully, like my friends were also sort of feeling the same way. Mm-hmm. And we, we kind of got in this great little routine of like, okay, hey, we're going to go out to breakfast. And then we're going to just, you know have some alone time for for like a half hour, whatever, just to like, and I realized that like our stamina, our social stamina is low. It is so low right now. Um, And just taking a little time to be like, okay, I just need, I need some space. Okay. Now I'm ready again. Like recharging and then be like, okay, I'm I'm ready to be around people again. You know? I found that to be super helpful. That's Allison, that's a great point. And what you were able to do with your friends, which I think is fantastic, is communicate. Because what you were going through, if we, we can use, if you don't mind that as an example, is Absolutely. what you were going through was a very individual experience. Mm-hmm. But what we're trying to do with these um, therapeutic conversations is to understand your individual experience is very valid. So the details of what happened to me during the pandemic and what happened to you, Allison, during the pandemic, the details might be different. But what we see is overall themes, therapeutic themes, Because once we really um, understand that this was a global pandemic, we can bring a sense of togetherness and community in that. And when you Mm -hmm. went away with your friends and individually you were feeling, my stamina of being social is not up to uh, what it used to be. I feel like I need some alone time. Understanding that the people that you were with might be feeling something similar and communicating that, you then allowed yourself to figure out what works best for you. 
right? So we're going through very individualized experiences and we honor that, but we also should bring light to the fact that this is also a very communal experience too. Right, right. And community is so important right now. Coming up, John discusses an issue that is near and dear to his heart. artist identity is a topic that you are very passionate about. And so just tell me a little bit more about that. Yes. And so, uh, I, you know, a lot of what I work with as a clinician uh, is uh, narratives, you know, mm-hmm. the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell ourselves can come from our family. They could come from society. They can come from um, uh, our religious background, and they can even come from the profession that we're in. And a lot of times when things aren't resonating with us, it's about something in that narrative, something in the story that we're telling ourselves, it's not really, it's not working. And there there can maybe be some healing that can happen there. And kind of uh, hearkening back to what we were talking about before, about maybe um, this idea that I didn't really feel that as a dancer, I had any transferable skills that would lead me to be a therapist. That was my narrative. My narrative was very, very limited that said, uh, I'm just a dancer. Not not that that's bad, but I'm only a dancer. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. And in my career as a dancer, and even in my training, it was silent. I learned Mm -hmm. visually. You know, the teacher uh, shows, you know, something with movement, and then I mimic with my body. And here I am in a profession where I have to speak, right? And so Mm -hmm. there's this idea of if my narrative of self is so limited, where did that come from? And is it resonating with me? And can I sort of expand out of it? And I do feel a lot of performers... Uh, have a narrative that says, I am what I do, not who I am. And I think all of us have had that experience, maybe walking down 8th Avenue in Hell's Kitchen, where you're like, oh gosh, here comes so-and-so. And And the first question out (laughs) of their mind, out of their mouth as a greeting isn't, hey, Allison, how are you? It's, hey, Allison, what are you up to? And those are two very different questions. How are you is a human connection. What are you up to is, I'm interested in your resume. And so there's all these things that sort of come, uh, these, you know, whether it's, um, subliminal or otherwise that come at us that really let us believe that this narrative as an artist is I'm valid in myself and as an artist, if I am working and we have to really sort of try as hard as we can to rewire that because there can be a lot of strife and a lot of pain in that narrative. Agreed. <laughs> um, and when we were talking before, you had said something uh, to the effect, and you're going to say this better than me, but like we've, a lot of us have had to, <laughs> no a pressure. lot of us have had to uh, to pivot during this time period yeah. and do something else. And I think that's been really challenging. Yeah. In that because we come from professions where so much of what we do is our identity, that suddenly when we're not doing that, we don't know who we are. And it's sort of realizing that, you know, this is what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing this forever. Beautifully put, yeah. But this is what I'm doing right now. Yeah. and that doesn't mean that you're, that doesn't make you any less of a dancer Mm -hmm. or any less of an artist. Yeah. so I feel like that's worth mentioning. No, and, that, and, and <laughs> honestly, I'll, I'll ju- I'm going to jump off what you said because you articulated yeah. that quite beautifully. Because what I try to work on mm-hmm. uh, with people that I speak with is just really sort of almost even using it as a mantra, this is for now, it's not forever. Mm-hmm. So if you have to take a pause on, on your craft, 
this isn't, this isn't forever. This is for now. And if you have to maybe like take up baking, which so many people have, and I, I wish someone in my household did because I could <laughs> benefit from it, but nobody <laughs> did. Uh, or if it's, you know, I want to do painting or I want to take an online class. I have people that I speak with that, you know, applied to grad school. So it's this idea of taking the blinders off and seeing a full spectrum of things. You know, not to say that being a performance artist isn't one of the most amazing professions in the world. It is, but, and I'm going to queen out on you, but I think you can handle it. We want to be Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz where she opens that door and goes from sepia to technicolor. Right. right? We want to open that door and realize that our life isn't just one thing that we thought it, it can be absolutely everything and anything. And we can course correct if we need to. Nothing mm-hmm. is set in stone. So if over this last year and a half, I wasn't able to dance and I, I took up knitting, great. And when the opportunity uh, arrives that I can sort of start training again, can start auditioning, I can sort of transfer into that as, as, as much as possible, right? And hopefully it frees us up from this sense of, because if it's forever, that's a contract. It's like, you know, this Ursula of the Sea Witch, you know, sign on the dotted line. That's a lot. That's a lot of pressure to put someone under. But if you right. can sort of focus on this is for now, it's not forever, it gives you hopefully a little bit of wiggle room. So are there any other tools that you recommend for helping mitigate anxiety? Yes. So the thing about this is, and uh, and I'll share with you, you know, I, I don't necessarily have the calmest mind on the planet. <laughs> so if I am to, you know, sit down and meditate, it's very, very difficult for me, right? And so it's, mm. it's sometimes, especially with people that are very active and very physically active, it's finding other things that can be meditative that mm-hmm. maybe aren't necessarily meditation. You know, mm-hmm. there's wonderful apps that people can download on their phones. Uh, one of them is called Calm, C-A-L-M, and there's so many of them where even there's guided meditations where, you know, you just listen to someone's voice and they sort of guide you into this very mindful uh, meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can sort of exercise, if you can, uh, you know, even walking your dog, if you're mindful, if you're taking in your surroundings, if you're implementing all of your senses, if you're seeing the trees, if you're smelling, you know, the flowers, if you're feeling the ground under your feet, you know, if you're just, if you're hearing the birds, all of these sort of things that keep you in the moment, it sort of can really sort of reduce stress sort of calm your heartbeat and have uh, many beneficial um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, attributes to it. But I would absolutely try to, especially when it comes to anxiety, because anxiety is usually racing of a mind. And so we Mm -hmm. want to sort of calm the mind down as much as possible. And if you are having a hard time, I always think guided things are very, very helpful. This is why people love podcasts, by the way. It's why people love things like ASMR, is because mm-hmm. they just focus and they can relax and yet someone else is taking them on this wonderful journey. Agreed, agreed. I got very into puzzles. Oh, wonderful. Over the past yes. year. I get in this zone with puzzles. It's yeah. so meditative to me. Like it's sorting, it's deductive reasoning it's skills. Yes. It's, and I just get into this zone and it totally alleviates. I have to physically do something. Yeah. Uh, my dirty it's, little secret is I got into puzzles too. And my friends yeah. definitely knew. Because I was the person before the pandemic. They're like, we're having a game night. I was like, do not invite me. I'm not going <laughs> And then I was doing these puzzles. But- but again, and I, if you're anything like me, then before the pandemic, I would have been like, I'm not sitting down to do a puzzle. Come on. Right. But it's these <laughs> things that are like, you know, finding out these meditative, calming things that maybe we poo-pooed before, but right. are really helpful now. And another thing I'd like to sort of just touch upon too is to calm anxiety is, you know, what I say to people all the time is, I don't know about you, but I've never been through a global pandemic. Right. I've never <laughs> been through There's no rule book. 
No one taught me how to do it. My, my Nana, she's still with us. God bless. 102. Oh my goodness. I think bless was, her. Yeah. She, I think she was born actually. Uh, the, the during year. the last pandemic. During the last, yeah, and I asked her about it. She was like, I don't remember that. But <laughs> you know, I asked my Nana and she'll constantly talk about the depression. And if anyone is still alive that has been through that, they talk about that all the time. Right. It was a global thing that affected everybody. And it was such a trauma that affected so many people's lives that it's, it, I'll just, just speak for them. my Nana, it stick with yeah. her her entire life. We've yeah. just gone through something very similar, right? We're going to be talking about this experience for the rest of our lives. We had no rule book for it. If you were able to navigate it to the best of your ability, then throw yourself a party. And if you have social anxiety, just have a party for one. <laughs> there's been no rule book. So I think we have to really start implementing a lot of empathy for ourselves for navigating right. the, the unimaginable. Right. Agreed. Agreed. John, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your, your wisdom and experience. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guest, John Carroll. For more information on some of the topics we discussed and to learn more about John and equity therapy, head on over to our website, anxietyandtheartist.com. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and share with your friends. We'd also really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or a comment in whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. Until next time, be healthy and stay creative. Anxiety in the Artist is produced by Grosta Productions and recorded at Homestead Studios. Music and engineering is by Bosco Chef. This podcast represents the opinions of Allison Chef and her guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.